I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to part two of the Stompcast. Uh, Johan Hari and I are just slipping away slightly down a path. Uh, in a beautiful <laughs> it's slightly dangerous what London. just happened to you there, Alex. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. This but might be your last ever podcast. No, listen, we've done some serious terrain, so it's been... Okay. <laughs> this is, this is, <laughs> if this is the one that I really stack it on, I really would have uh, embarrassed myself, alas. <laughs> it's been fascinating talking about addiction. I just wonder for, yes, for people maybe who suffer addiction, but also if, say, you're in a habit or in a cycle of doing things that maybe are not serving you in the best way, but you want to change, you don't know how to approach that. What kind of tips would you give to people just to say, do you know what, I don't know, let's use an example of alcohol because it's something I've talked about quite a lot. If you're going to remove alcohol, how do you actually make sure that you're still gaining that connection and you're able to not end up in a situation where you basically go, oh, God, I need that back? Well, I think it's about firstly understanding... I mean, there's a huge spectrum there, isn't there? Mm. There's people who drink a bit too much and it's bad for their health mm. to people who have very severe addiction. Yes. So there's, I would give different advice based mm-hmm. on, and the, the main and primary advice I'd give is go immediately to a doctor and seek help. But, um, so I think it very much varies, but I think it would be rooted. The first thing is really important for people to understand is it's not your fault, right? Because we tell very pathologizing and stigmatizing stories, even well-intentioned people, and I would say very likely nothing wrong with you. It's probably that bad things happen to you. Yeah. Um, and you need love, help and support. And you deserve love, help and support. So I would start with that. And I would try to connect them with points of love and support mm. where they can get practical help. But yeah, so that would be where I would start. Obviously, you'd want to talk, listen very closely to their story and listen very closely to the individual mm. rather than... You know, for anything as complex as human addiction or human despair or depression or anxiety, we should be very wary of anyone who thinks there's one thing, one solution Mm. to these very complex phenomena. We have to be attentive to the nine causes and then we have to build solutions around them. And so obviously I went to places that had done that for both books and, you know, places here in London, actually. Wonderful doctors. We can talk about social prescribing if you want. There's all sorts of different solutions. But I would would say that the it's not your fault. The causes, um, it will really help you if you understand the deeper causes of your depression and anxiety. And then it will help if other people support you to deal with those deeper causes. Yeah, and very much that, just to echo that point around self-compassion. If you ever want to make a change in your life, regardless, you say, which end of the spectrum you're at with it, how severe addiction might be, or whether it's the fact you feel, whether it's the fact it's loneliness or boredom, wherever it comes out of, or wherever your despair comes from, you have to practice that self-compassion. It's actually one of the best solutions to that feeling is actually not to focus on the self, but to help other people. There's really interesting mm. research by... Kindness, of course, yeah. A wonderful person called Dr. Brett Ford at the University of Toronto, who did this really fascinating research. They were trying to figure work. out... They were trying to figure out, does consciously trying to be happy actually make you happier, right? So let's imagine that you spent an hour a day trying to be happier. Would it work? And they did this research in four countries. They did it in the US, Russia, Taiwan, and Japan. Mm. 
And what they found at first seems really weird. In the US, if you try to make yourself happier deliberately, it doesn't work. In Russia, Taiwan and Japan, if you try to make yourself happier deliberately, it does work. And at first, like, well, that doesn't make sense. How can that be? I did more analysis of it. And what they discovered is in the US, and I'm sure this is true of us, in the main, if you try to make yourself happier, you do something for you, right? You work harder to get a raise. You treat yourself by buying something. We have an individualistic idea about what it means to be happy. The way for you to be happy is to make you better off, right? In the other countries, Russia, uh, Taiwan and Japan, in the main, there were exceptions on both sides, of course, but in the main, when people wanted to make themselves happier, they did something for someone else, their friends, their family, their community. So they have an instinctively collective idea of what it means to be happy. So our... Um, our, our, our story it. about happiness doesn't work very well, right? Because, told... because, well, often, because uh, the thing listening listen to that, you've got reward and pleasure, which often is dopamine-driven versus kind of oxytocin of kindness. I think that kind of the dopamine gives you that real up and down. It doesn't really equate to actual happiness. And a lot of the things you do for yourself actually just trigger your dopamine. Oh, I'll go and buy something, dopamine. I'll go and do whatever. It doesn't actually give you that sense of fulfillment. Whereas you're kind to other people. It's very deep, it's much deeper, con- like almost subconscious level of like, genuine gratification reward you get from going doing something without expecting to receive that is we all know that feeling don't we you often think back to that moment you might be the little jash you've made in your life but it's an incredible feeling when you do something without expecting anything back isn't it and you feel that like i feel good you know yeah and i think absolutely self-compassion is important not if you're sunk in stigma and a negative story about yourself it's very important to repair that but that's really to me the preparatory step or or should be simultaneously happening with actually helping others. And, you know, it's helped me with my depression, no matter how... And obviously it's one of many things that can help depressed and anxious people. It's not the f- first one or the primary one. But even when you feel like absolute shit, you can almost always make someone else feel better. You can, you know, even if it's something as simple as sending a text about a good thing they've ever done, right? Yeah. So we live in a very narcissistic, self-focused culture, which is not our fault. We're being constantly prompted to be narcissistic by these big machineries social media advertising all sorts of forces and um, we have to kind of resist that machinery because it will leave you trapped and rattling around in your own ego and feeling like shit you know that because that's not the answer right um as you can see from the fact that you know look at the most egotistical people are they happy just i've never seen a more unhappy person than donald trump i don't mean that as a cheap point no yeah like yeah. literally I've no, i can't think of a more unhappy person listen we've been talking about rat life rat parking heaven all sorts of different things so far and it's been really interesting talking about like where, where does is it lone is loneliness the issue where do the problems come from where is it self-compassion is it kindness what do we do to feel better on ourselves now i really want to move on and talk about attention and focus i was diagnosed with and i and i and I would like to actually hear your opinion on this attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which struck me when I received the diagnosis as an interesting one, because first of all, I don't know, do I have a deficit of attention or is my attention shaped slightly, slightly different to what others might be? Is that truly a deficit? I don't know. I think my attention is incredibly laser focused and incredibly attentive, funny enough, a lot of the time. Uh, and also, uh, am I disordered? And if I'm disordered, what is the definition of ordered? And would that definition change depending on where I am, where I grew up and where I worked and so on? And and I think it's really interesting when you look at your work and all the places you've been around the world in your research. I just wondered, like, what is your thought about 
ADHD? Is it all about like my brain and how it's made, or is it the environment? Is it both? Is it society's expectation? What is the yeah, as, root as you know, of it all? As you know from my books about this stolen focus where you can't pay attention, I interviewed dozens of scientists and did a very deep dive into the science on this. I mean, the reason I was interested in this whole topic is, you know, very personal. I could feel that my own attention was getting worse and worse. You know, with each year that passed, I could see that things that require deep focus that are very important to me, like having proper long conversations, reading books, watching films, were getting more and more like kind of running up a down escalator. I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I could see this happening to huge numbers of people around me, far more than could be accounted for purely by biology. You know, the average uh, office worker now focuses on only one task for less than three minutes. Just wow. The average office worker now focuses on any one task for less than three minutes. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been wow, identified wow, with wow. that problem. So, and I was particularly worried about the young people in my life who, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of someone I'm seeing later on today, but I've got a, I've got a godson. And uh, when he was, I've got several godsons, but I'm thinking about a particular one. When uh, Gorbidal said, Always a godfather, never a god, which the line I was like. But um, when I was, um, you know, when he was nine, he developed this incredibly cute obsession with Elvis Presley. And it was, it was so cute because he seemed to genuinely not know that impersonating Elvis had become a kind of cheesy cliche. So I think he was the last person in the history of the world to do an entirely sincere version of Charles Rock. True, true. Um, and every night when uh, I would tuck him into bed, he would get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. And... Um, Obviously, I skipped over the bit of the end where he shot himself yes, to death yes, on the toilet. Indeed. And uh, one night I mentioned Graceland, where, um, where Elvis lived. It's in the news a lot at the moment because Lisa Marie Presley, his daughter, was just buried there. I mentioned Graceland and um, I said that people go and visit it. And his whole face lit up and he said, what, you can go to Elvis's house? I was like, yeah. He said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And the way you do with nine-year-olds, I said, yeah, sure. No, next week it'll be Legoland or whatever they yeah, want to yeah, go to. Yeah. And he said... Let me guess, he did not forget. Well, it's funny because he said, no, do you really swear? And I said, I absolutely promise. And then we both forgot about it for 10 years. And when he was 15, he dropped out of school. And by the time he was 19, um, this will sound like an exaggeration, but it absolutely isn't. He spent literally almost all his waking hours alternating between his iPad, his iPhone and his laptop. Um, and it was... It was like he was whirring at the speed of Snapchat, mm. where nothing still or serious could touch him. Sure. And it was awful. And I remember one day we were, we were sitting on my sofa in my flat, and all day I was trying to get a conversation going with him. Mm. And I couldn't. I just couldn't do it. And he's a very intelligent, lovely person. Mm. And to be honest with you, I wasn't that much better, right? I was staring at my own devices. Mm. And I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before, and I said to him, hey, this is no way to live. Let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me completely blankly. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? And I, he didn't remember. I think he remembered when I reminded him. And, and I said, you know, let's break this numbing routine. Let's go on a road trip all over the South. But you've got to promise me one thing, which is that when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day. And he really thought about it. And he said, yeah, I want to do this. Let's do it. Because he wasn't happy with the way he was living. And I think it was literally two weeks later, we took off from Heathrow to... New Orleans where we went first and so we we traveled around a lot and then we went to New Orleans first and then a couple of weeks later we got to the gates of Graceland and when you get there 
and this is even before COVID, there's no one to show you around. What happens is you, um, they hand you an iPad, yeah. you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, you know, go left, go right, all that stuff. And uh, every room you go in, tells you a story about that room and there's an image of that room on the iPad in front of you. So we're walking around Graceland and getting a bit pissed off because everyone's just sort of looking at their iPad, yeah, yeah. right? Every now and then people look away from it to take out their phones, take a selfie and then they go back to the iPad. And we got to the jungle room that was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. It's got loads of fake plants in it. And I'll never forget them. There was this Canadian couple from maybe about 50 standing next to us. And the man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed because I thought they were kidding. And I just stood and watched them and they were just swiping back and forth. And I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping yeah, you could yeah. do. It's called just turning your head because you realize we're, you're here. We're literally in the jungle yeah, you room, are right? quite there. <laughs> you, don't you don't have need to look it. at it on the internet. Yeah. It's literally all around you. You are present here. Yeah. And they looked at me like I was completely deranged and backed out the room. And I, I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat because from the moment yeah. we landed, he literally couldn't stop. Sure. And I went up to him. I did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to physically grab the phone from his hands. And I said, look, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. Yeah. You're not present at in your own life. In either place. Well, I say to um, so people a lot of the time, and I talk to, to kids at school and stuff, I said, you know, you do realise, and their face, you can see almost like the penny drop um, in their minds. And, and you go, well, you do realise that when you're scrolling, that is someone's past. You're actually spending your present in someone's past. Like these pictures you see, they almost like set, it's almost set up your social media uh, platforms to feel like you're in the real time, right? You're there, like you're lying. It's like, this is what's happening. It's like, you're watching someone else's photo. They probably even didn't take just now. They took it last week and you're looking at it and you're, you're scrolling through all this stuff. Like you're missing the literal present of the moment you're in. But the, the, do, you, do you find this with your sunmates? I realised almost as soon as I got angry, this is anger about myself, yeah, much more than anger with him, right? And we were, and he just stormed off. And we walked, I walked around Memphis on my own that day. I found him later in the Heartbreak Hotel mm. where we were staying. And he was sitting by this huge guitar-shaped swimming pool and looking at his phone. And I went up to him and I apologised for getting so angry. And he said, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. Mm. And it was so interesting because in that moment I realised we came away to get away from this problem of distraction. Yeah. But there was nowhere to escape to because it's everywhere, it's all around us, right? So I ended up, to try to understand what's going on, going on this big journey all over the world from uh, Moscow to Miami to Melbourne to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus. And, and what I learned from them is there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make your attention worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been massively rising in recent years, right? And many of them will be playing out for you. Um, you know, the book is called Stolen Focus because your attention did not collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by some very big forces, which some of which are in our tech, some of which are things I'd never even thought about. Um, the food we eat is massively affecting our ability to focus. Air pollution is massively affecting our ability to focus. The way our kids' schools work, the way our offices work, there's a huge array of factors. All these changes. So this is a long way of answering your question about ADHD, but you've had a huge series of changes in the way we live yeah. where the evidence is very clear that these changes harm attention right and you have lots of people who have attention problems 
Some of those people, the scientific evidence suggests, their genes will make them somewhat more sensitive mm -hmm. to these problems, right? As Chris McCogliano, who's one of the experts on this, said, um, those people with that genetic inheritance will be more like canaries in the coal mine. But it is, I'm worried that we are, oh, we are telling an overly simplistic story where people have these, these, these huge factors that are harming their attention. And we say, it's just your biology. And lots of people are getting that message. I fear it's a repeat of the message that was given in the 1990s about depression, which has now been backed off from by virtually everyone, where people said depression was just the cause of a chemical imbalance in people's brains, which we now know is not true, right? There's some biological contribution, but there's a huge yes, array of sure. causes from Absolutely. loneliness to trauma, a whole array of them that are massive contributing factors. And I worry that we're telling an overly simplistic story about attention. Every single person who's going to their doctor with an attention problem has a real problem. And for some minority of them, their genes will be playing some role in that. And that's very real and the scientific evidence for it is compelling. But there's also the other 11 factors that are playing out, uh, many of which we can deal with, right? In fact, all of which we can deal with, some of which we can deal with as individuals and some of which we can deal with collectively. That brings us to the end of part two of the Stompcast. We're going to talk a little bit more about attention in part three because I know it's something that a lot of us want more of and to get a hold of indeed. See you in part three. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.